Well, I've got good news for you this morning. Now, there's uh, ordinary good news, like when the guys invite me to play golf. That's good news. Uh, then there's uh, good news on the life scale, like when the doctor says, Mr. White, it's not cancer. That's really good news. And then there's good news on the global scale, like August 1945, when President Truman declared the end of World War II. That good news sent people flooding into the streets of New York City. You probably remember the picture of that sailor kissing the girl in Times Square. The news was so good because the war had been so bad. But even beyond that, there's good news on a cosmic scale. The kind of good news that impacts all of creation, all of history. That's the news that I want to share with you today. Our study of 1 Corinthians has brought us this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I invite you to please take your copy of God's Word, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. At chapter 15, Paul begins addressing a new issue with the church. You'll remember in your study with us that Paul has been addressing issues one after the other. Most of them very serious problems for which he is admonishing them. This one, not an issue that is specifically a behavioral problem, but a problem of confusion over doctrine. Some in the church at Corinth were confused about what happens after death. I wonder if you ever think about that. You ever think about what happens after death? I think it's quite common for all of us to consider that. It's one of those big questions in life, isn't it? Well, if you look at chapter 15, verse 12, Paul says, how can you, pardon me, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That was the issue that he addresses in all of chapter 15. Some in Corinth may have believed that there is no life after death at all, what we commonly refer to as annihilation, that death ends it all. But I think given the, uh, the things that we've learned about the church at Corinth and the mentality of the church at Corinth so far in the letter, I think it's more likely that some believed in a spiritual life after death, but not any sort of physical life after death, no resurrection of the body. A spiritual life that uh, involves some sort of disembodied existence in an ethereal world that is far, far away. Well, Paul says, I have good news for you. <laughs> I have really good news for you. The science of annihilation doesn't have good news for us. The religion of works doesn't have good news for us. The theory of reincarnation certainly doesn't have any good news for us. If that's true, I'll likely come back as a slug. But Christianity has phenomenally good news for a world under the curse of death. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the real, 
physical resurrection of the dead for all of his disciples and all of creation. And that, my friend, is cosmic good news. As we'll see in the coming weeks, Paul is going to make his case throughout chapter 15, and we will deal with this in four additional sermons. Paul's going to make his case by asking and answering some questions. Paul asks, for example, well, what if the resurrection of the dead is not true? And then subsequently he asks, but what if the resurrection of the dead is true? And then after establishing his his case, you'll notice in verse 35 and following that Paul says, what will our bodies be like in the resurrection? And then he concludes chapter 15 in verse 50 through 58 by asking, what are some of the implications of the resurrection of the dead in this life and the next? I'm really interested to hear Paul's answers to these questions. I hope you are too. We'll be studying them over the next four weeks, and I'd invite you to come back each and every Sunday. But before he gets to those, before he gets specifically to the issue of the resurrection from the dead, Paul begins his entire discussion about this new topic saying, before we talk about the resurrection of the dead, let's talk about something that we all agree on at the church at Corinth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Before we talk about the resurrection of the dead, whether that's true or not, let's talk about something that at the church of Corinth, everybody agreed on. In the early church, everybody agreed on. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's first point here in verse 1 through 11, our sermon for today, is that the resurrection of Jesus is an essential part of the gospel. And so he spends the first 11 verses explaining the phenomenal good news of the gospel that includes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My prayer this morning as we study the first 11 verses is that we as a church and each person individually will believe and hold fast to this gospel, this life-changing good news about Jesus. Let's read our sermon text, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, 
And so you believed. That's God's word. So Paul begins here by giving them three reminders of the gospel. Before he ever talks about the resurrection of the dead, before he gets to what happens after we die, he reminds the church of what they already believe about the gospel. Today, let's talk about the gospel. For them, it was a reminder. For many of us, it will be a reminder of the gospel. But maybe for some of you, this is new. He gives them three reminders of the gospel. Number one, in verse one and two, Paul says the gospel is the central truth of Christianity. The gospel is the central truth of Christianity. Look at verse one and two again. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel that I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He says the resurrection of Jesus is an essential part of the gospel, the gospel that two things we preached and you believed. See there in verse one. He says, I preach this and you believe this or you receive this. Then again in verse 11, whether it was I or they, the other apostles. So we preach this gospel. And so you believed this gospel. The gospel is what the apostles preached. The, the apostles may have had lots of different lessons about the gospel, but it was the gospel that the apostles preached. Christianity is about the gospel, not moral reform, not social justice, not life principles about marriage and family and success. The central truth of Christianity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the apostles preached. And every church, friend, no matter what the label, every church is either orthodox or unorthodox, depending on whether they preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again. The gospel is not only what the apostles preached, but notice it is what they received. The church at Corinth received the gospel. That means that the gospel is not only the central truth of Christianity, but it's the central truth of every Christian. The verb tenses here that he talks in verse 1 and 2 emphasize the centrality of the gospel past, present, and then moving into the future. They received, past tense, the gospel. It is in the gospel that they presently stand. It is the gospel by which they are being saved. The gospel is what the church corporately and every Christian receives and believes. Let me ask you. Have you received the gospel of Jesus? Do you believe the gospel of Jesus? Paul says in verse 1, we received the gospel, or at the church at Corinth, received the gospel. He explains what he means by received in verse 11 when he reiterates, he says, so we preached and you believed. The gospel is received by faith. Uh, Romans 10 explains faith this way. Faith is confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So believing faith is not just confessing with your mouth. Anybody can say anything. 
It's confessing with the mouth. Why? Because we believe with our hearts about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It goes on, for with the heart, one believes and is justified. That means made right with God. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. Verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We receive the gospel by faith when we believe it in our heart confess with our mouth and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. That's what it means to receive and believe the gospel. Look at the second verb that he uses there. Verse 1. Not only which you receive, but in which you stand. The Corinthians stand in and on the gospel. Every true Christian stands in and on the gospel. It's the foundation for our faith. We stand on it. We stand in it because it is our identity. And it, friends, is our status before God. Remember, one of the core issues at the church at Corinth was their arrogance. They thought they had arrived. We stand. Our status before God is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, it's the wise man. It's the wise man who will build his life on the gospel, Jesus' words, and that will result in being safe and secure forever. But the foolish one are those who build their lives on human logic and philosophy and religion. And like a house that's built on the sand, when the difficulties of life or the judgment of God comes, Jesus says, it will fall and great will be the fall of it. So I wonder, friend, do you stand in and on the gospel? Is it your status before God? Look at the third verb that he uses, verse 2. And by which you are being saved. This is where they are presently, but that being is is taking them on in the future. This is a progressive salvation. You are saved from the past penalty of sin, the present power of sin, and the future presence of sin. The gospel is presently and will continue to save the Christian who receives it by faith from the curse of sin and death. It's only the gospel by which you are being saved, not your works. (laughs) And then at the end of verse 2, Paul says, if. You see that? Warning. If. Condition. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, the gospel. If you hold fast to the gospel, unless you believe the gospel in Vain. The implication here is that Paul is concerned that some of them are departing from the gospel. This conditional clause does not teach that true believers are in danger of losing their salvation. No, it's a warning against a false faith that though it might look real, though you might be connected to the church, is absolutely worthless. It's a a warning that some people start out strong, maybe even start out by receiving the gospel with joy, as Matthew chapter 13 teaches in the parable of the soils and the seed and the sower. But eventually... They turn away from Christ because of the difficulties that are associated with the gospel or or maybe the responsibilities of life or the pursuit of wealth. Hold fast to the gospel, friends. 
Paul never views the faith as a static reality that cancels out the need for present and future faith, Tom Schreiner reminds us. Paul's point is that the gospel is the central truth of Christianity. It's what the apostles preached. It's what Christians believe. And it is what Christians must hold fast to. It's the central truth. So let me just ask you a question this morning. Is the gospel the central truth of Winchester Baptist Church? Is the gospel what we preach And for you individually, is the gospel the central defining truth of your life? Is it the basis for all of your decisions? Is it the basis of your marriage and your home? The gospel is the central truth of Christianity. Number two, in verse three through eight. In verse 3 through 8, Paul teaches us that the gospel, which, remember, includes Jesus' resurrection. He's going to get to that. But the gospel is the good news that Christ has accomplished God's plan of resurrection. It's not just the central truth of Christianity, but it is good news. Good news of what? Good news that Jesus Christ has accomplished God's plan to redeem the entire world back to the way it was supposed to be. Verse 3 through 8, Paul defines the gospel. If someone were to ask you, so I hear people talking about the gospel all the time. What is the gospel? Here's Paul's answer. This is the gospel. Notice how he begins verse 3. Two important words. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Those words, delivering and receiving, are the language of established tradition, just like our creeds and confessions. The apostles' creed this morning. We have received throughout the centuries this truth about the gospel, and we deliver it. We confess it because it's true according to the scriptures. Well, Paul says, I delivered to you there in Corinth what I received. He received the gospel from the Lord Jesus Christ and then from various ones in the church, and he delivered it to the church at Corinth. The gospel, the the actual word gospel means good news. And it's the good news, look there, verse 3 through 8, it's the good news of what Christ has done. Oh, friends, this is so important. Paul, in verse 3 through 8, explains what Christ has done. Four verbs. Four works of redemption, all of them accomplished by Christ. Here's the big difference between religion and the gospel. Religion is what we do for God. The gospel is the news of what Christ done has done for us. <laughs> and what Christ has done for us is phenomenally cosmic good news. I want you to notice something else before we look at the four redemptive works of Christ individually. I want you to notice in verse 3 that two of them are highlighted. Verse 3, the death of Christ is highlighted. And in verse 4, the resurrection is highlighted. How are they highlighted? They're emphasized with the same phrase. Do you see it? In accordance with the scriptures. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Verse 4, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
Now, there's no doubt that Paul had lots of scriptures in mind that he could have referenced right there. But according to the scriptures is shorthand for the fact that the work of Christ fulfilled God's plan of redemption that had been promised in the scriptures. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, specifically his death and his resurrection, uniquely accomplished God's purpose of salvation that he had promised throughout all of the Old Testament. So his death was accomplishing the scriptures. His resurrection was accomplishing not just the scriptures, but God's plan to redeem the world. What did Christ do? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Four works of redemption. Number one, look in verse three. For I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. Friends, that implies that we are sinners. Do you think of yourself as a sinner before a holy and righteous God? Many people do not. But the Bible clearly tells us, for all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken God's law. Is there any doubt in your mind that you're a sinner who has broken God's law in thought, in word, in deed, by what you have done and by what you have left undone? Friends, we're all sinners. This implies that our sin has separated us from God has separated us from God under the curse and penalty of death. You remember the Garden of Eden, the very first two human beings created in absolute perfection. Adam and Eve were literally walking with God, communing with him every day, living in the presence of God Almighty. And God said, I made all of this for you. But don't sin. Don't transgress my law because if you break my law, which is for your good, if you break my law, then there will be nothing but death down that road. It's a path that leads to foolishness and destruction. Adam and Eve sinned. And what happened immediately? They were separated from God. God threw them out of the Garden of Eden. <laughs> Even to the point that he put angels there with flaming swords to protect them from entering back into the Garden of Eden. But God gave them a promise. I will send you a Messiah, a Redeemer, who will save you from your law-breaking sin. Christ died for our sins implies that our sin has separated us from God. Friends, every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve has been born outside the garden, separated from God as a sinner ever since. Romans 5.12 says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death has passed upon all men, because all have sinned. We have all followed in our father Adam's footsteps by sinning against God. Is there any doubt in your mind that you too are not a son of Adam and a daughter? Of Eve? 
We're separated from God by our sin. But this verse gives us the good news. Christ died for our sin. God was not content to leave us where we deserved, separated from him forever. But God loved us and sent his son to take our penalty upon himself. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Peter 3 puts it this way. Christ also died for our sins once for all. The just for the unjust so that he might bring us back to God. The one who never sinned, the one who was just, came outside the garden, took our penalty of death so that he could bring us back to God again. And John 3 says it this way, right after the famous verse that we all know that says, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That verse continues in John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. No. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in the name of the only Son of God is condemned already. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. Christ died for our sin. That's good news. That is really good news because that means that when we are united to Christ, by faith, that we're no longer condemned by our sins. That means that now we're different. We are no longer sinners, but we are made righteous, not by our works, but by the work of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Sin no longer condemns us before a holy God, friend. Our sin is forgiven. Colossians chapter 2, Paul said, God has forgiven us all of our transgressions by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. <laughs> My rap sheet and your rap sheet of offenses and crimes against God and others have been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ, and Jesus paid it all. Our sin has been cleansed. John tells us the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Isaiah says our sin has been forgotten. God declares, I, even I, am he that 
blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sin. That's good news. Can you imagine standing before God on the day of judgment and God saying to you, I will not remember your sin. Why? Because God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in loving kindness. And Psalm 103 says, God does not deal with us according to our sin or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so Far does God remove our transgressions from us. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus died for our sins, which means that God will never, never treat us as our sins deserve. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. None. Forgiven. Everything. I don't know about you, but there is no greater good news in all the world for a sinner like me. But that good news only comes through Christ. Because it was only Christ that died for our sins. Keep reading. Verse 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried. Christ was buried. Burial is proof of his death. Jesus didn't just seem dead. He didn't swoon. He wasn't in an unconscious, comatose state. Jesus died. The sword in his side. The rush of blood and water was proof. The fact that his friends buried him is proof. The fact that the Roman government posted guards in front of his tomb was proof. Jesus died and was buried. A historical reality, just like every historical thing that you've ever believed. Number three, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That never happened before. (laughs) Lots of people died. Lots of people were buried. But no one ever was raised from the dead except under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul uses the perfect tense, was raised, completed action with ongoing continual results. Christ was buried by his friends, but he was raised by God, Paul Gardner tells us. And John Stott gives us this great nugget of truth. Listen, we're not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won and the resurrection was the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. Jesus died and was buried and was raised the third day. And by the way, Jesus predicted that he would be raised on the third day four times 
before he died. Only God can do that. And finally, look in verse 5. He not only died and was buried and was raised, but then he appeared. Jesus appeared. After he was raised from the dead, he appeared. He appeared to six different people or groups of people. Do you see them listed there? Cephas, the twelve. More than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, Paul says, though some have already fallen asleep, a euphemism for died. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and then last of all, he appeared, Paul says, to me. By listing different people and different times and in different places, and especially adding the fact that Jesus appeared to 500 at one time, some of whom are still alive, I agree with Paul Gardner who said this, the resurrection of Jesus was seen by too many people to be fabricated. Paul says, last of all, verse 8, last of all, he appeared to me. Jesus appeared to Paul. Last of all indicates two things. Last in time. In other words, there were no more appearances of Jesus. And last in dignity. Friends, the gospel, which includes the resurrection of Jesus, is the good news, the cosmic good news that Christ has accomplished God's plan of redemption through his death, burial, resurrection. Appearances. Through his ascension, we could go on, his intercession, and through his return. I guess my question for you, especially non-Christian friend, is this. Do you believe this good news? Do you see yourself as a sinner who is under the judgment of God, who deserves judgment for your sin? And do you see God's love displayed and demonstrated to us in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you do, don't wait any longer. Jesus tells us, repent and believe. Repent means turn away from your sin. Believe. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. And every scriptural Christian is then encouraged to be baptized in profession and confession of their faith. In Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2 says it this way. Those who received his word were baptized and were added that day to the church about 3,000 souls. The gospel is the good news that Christ has accomplished God's plan of redemption. Finally, number three, the gospel is the grace of God. That changes lives. Verse 9 through 11. After, after setting up the gospel and defining the gospel, Paul gives a personal testimony of the gospel. Look at verse 9 through 11 again. Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, circle that. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace, circle it, his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, speaking of the other apostles, though it was not I, but, are you ready? The grace of God that is within me. Paul's story is a story of God's grace through the gospel of Christ. God's grace through the gospel of Christ. L listen, here's, here's what you have to understand. 
There is no Christianity without God's grace, and there's no grace without Christ. Without Christ, what do we get? What do we deserve? Judgment. But with Christ, what do we get? We get grace. The grace of God through the gospel of Christ is a life-changing gospel. Paul tells his story. And notice that he emphasizes over and over and over again God's grace. Paul's story of being changed from what he was to what he is today is not a testimony of uh, personal discipline. It's not a testimony of moral reform or of religious devotion or of even having spiritual experiences. Paul says, God's grace changed who I am. The gospel changed me from the inside out. Look, Paul gives a three-part testimony. And it's the same three-part testimony that every true Christian has. Paul's life before Christ. God's grace to Paul through Christ. And then Paul's life after Christ. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to even be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. How many of you have done that? How many of you have set it as your goal in life to snuff out the church of Jesus Christ? To actually kill Christians? That was Paul's goal. That was his job. Paul, as a zealous Jew, believed that Jesus was the biggest blasphemer on the face of the earth. And so he wanted to snuff out the testimony of Jesus, and all of the followers of Jesus. Paul literally went around from city to city, making life miserable for the church and presiding over the death and persecution of Christians. Paul says, I tried to destroy the church of Christ. That's who I was. Verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. What changed? God's grace through Jesus Christ. That's what changed. And Paul says, God's grace wasn't in vain. It was effective. It was powerful to transform his life from the inside out. I love what uh, David Garland says. He says, grace does not so much require a response as it enkindles a response. It empowers and equips. Grace transforms us. And Paul gives all glory to God for his grace. He says, whatever I used to be and whatever I am now, all glory is to God alone. God did this. I am what I am by God's grace. And so then, what is he now? Part three. Paul's life after Christ. Look at the end of verse 10. On the contrary, now I worked harder than any of them, all of the other apostles, who I don't even feel like I should be in the same locker room with these guys. I work harder than them, though it's not me. It's still the grace of God that is within me. What does Paul mean? Paul means that because I used to be enemy number one, because I used to try to destroy God's church, now I'm driven with that same zeal to build God's church. Total transformation. And friends, the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ will do the same thing in your heart. The gospel is the grace of God that changes lives. Do you have a testimony of the grace of God changing you from who you were to by God's grace 
who you are and are still being made to be into the image of Christ. Oh, listen. (laughs) I can hear some now saying, look, if Jesus would appear to me personally, I'd believe too. Now, we might chuckle at that, but can you hear the arrogance of that? I mean, demanding that the God of the universe meet you on your terms. (laughs) Demanding that Jesus... Make a personal appearance to me before I'll believe in you. Listen, maybe it's not that you don't believe. Maybe it's that you won't. Because you don't want to be changed. My friend, Jesus has appeared to you through the record of Scripture, through the fact of His resurrection, through the blood of thousands of martyrs, through the existence of the church, through the transformed lives of the Christians that you probably know personally, and through the Spirit's call even now in your heart. Turn away from your sin. Trust Christ. The gospel is the central truth of Christianity. It's the good news. The good news that Jesus has accomplished God's plan of redemption and it's the grace of God that will change your life and is changing lives for all of those who will turn from sin and trust Christ to save us. Praise God for the gospel. Let's thank him now in prayer. God, thank you so much for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for sending your son to bear our sin to die for us, and then to raise from the dead victorious over sin and death. And I pray that you would unite us to him by faith, every single person in this room. I pray that you, by the miracle of your regeneration, Because of your mercy and grace and love, I pray that you would give faith to those who do not have it. I pray that you would cause those of us who have been transformed by your grace to hold fast to that grace and never turn away. We need your grace to persevere. And I pray that all of this will be done so that we, as a church, will continue to proclaim the glory of your gospel to everyone that we meet. Soli Deo Gloria. We praise you, God, for the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.